disruptive already. I know, typical. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages to talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, well, will not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your fighting duo today are David Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 194, Interview with Peter Sartucci. Welcome, Peter. Hey. Hey, Peter. It is so good to see you. Everybody, Peter has been a long, long time and friend of Dave Welsh and myself. We all met years ago in the International Fantasy Gaming Society. And that is a LARP live action role playing where when we first met him, Peter, you were like pretty much one of my favorite game writers. You wrote the games that we would all go and play our way through through the day. As, was that where you got started with writing in general, or was that where you really got into the whole story arc idea? Where did you come from? With my introduction to telling a competent story arc, feedback from a live-action role-playing game is pretty much instant. Um, players will complain even during the game if they're not happy with what I've done. I had started, my original writing experience, other than um, school work, was when I went to grad school at CSU, got into the dormitory. Um, I was due to enroll in the summer program the next day before I started my serious graduate research in the fall. Went to register and a guy accidentally dropped the volleyball base on one foot and broke four bones. So I ended up spending that entire summer not taking class, but instead lying in bed in the, the graduate student housing at CSU. And if my fellow grad students hadn't taken care of me, I'd have starved to death. All I could reach from my bed with my foot swathed in a huge bundle of cast and stuff was my little portable silver reed typewriter and one ream of paper. So I wrote the worst, most horrible novel ever done in the history of humanity, an utter and total ripoff of the thieves world. And I, I occasionally, I still have it. I occasionally take it out to remind myself that I've gotten better, but that was my first time I actually tried to write a, a novel. When, when I discovered the IFGS toward the tale of my graduate student experience and realized that I could write games for people. I fell head over heels into that for, well, a dozen plus years, I guess, Jeannie, that we were there doing that. It, at um, least your Queechy egg hunt held every every year near Easter was one of the highlights of the gaming summer and kicked <laughs> it off properly. That was so much fun. It also taught me that other people make events happen than just the author. A book is more than just the words I put on the paper. And we'll talk about covers and other things like that as we go. But it's all the rest of the human beings involved in the production, particularly the ones that are behind the scenes that the person reading or acting or participating doesn't see. Um, Queechy Egg Hunt was wonderful in part because Barb Slayton made those fabulous costumes that look like Big Bird. And yeah. we, we, had, we had all those Hilarious. I like being a bird. That was where I met Dave because Dave was a spider cultist going through the Quichi. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I adored the spider cultist team. They were so much fun. That that worked so well. Yeah. So yeah, I, I had a wonderful time. Quichi egg hunt was one of the the points at which I understood what I was doing finally in game writing. And that was I was writing for an audience. I was I was attempting to produce something that would appeal to people in ways that I already knew they wished to be appealed to. Um, 
And I've taken that to heart ever since. I, I wish I had had that revelation earlier <laughs> in my career. No, I, I like it. I don't think anybody's ever said that before, that your your first novel was writing for you. There have been a couple other first novelists out there we've chatted with, but they didn't put it so succinctly that yeah. they, you, writing it for you, lying in bed makes sense. Now, you have five books out in this world of yours, you know, Shadow and Light, Shadow yep. Rising. The first one you sent me a copy to was Shadow Devoted in the new trilogy. Yep. And that's what uh, I made Dave read it too, so we could chat with you about it. I really like these books and I really like your world. And tell us a little bit about how you got started building this world. It actually is a derivative of that horrible first novel in that oh. the character I made up for that um, evolved over time, quite a lot of evolving into Karen D'Umbra, change of name, change of everything just about. But the same soul that I tried to write about all those 30 plus years ago um, is still present in uh -huh. Karen you read in the books now. That's the character, but what about the world? I have a theory um, that I ran by Jeannie before we started that you're, um, because even gaming with you, it was clear that you had a lot of world building uh, that you just, I mean, it, it seems to kind of come naturally to you. You just, you just like have these elaborate worlds at your, at your disposal. So my, uh, my theory is that you, that you have a, a world that you live in mentally and, and you just pull things out of it and you've been building it for, for decades. Um, and that you don't, you don't start from scratch for any given novel. Am I close? I actually have more than one, um, but <laughs> I, I would I would say that so the world of Silbar is the the one I've lived in the most, and certainly yeah. one I've written in the most. Yes, yeah. and I I am trained in my college years as a biologist, specifically as an ecologist, looking for interrelationships between things because I've always found that fascinating. Um, one of the things that's annoyed me greatly over the years is fantasy writers who write fantasy without bothering to make the world in which they're doing things make sense. Um, I was really tickled when I read Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Rider series that she did struggle within her limited knowledge to make the dragons fit into an ecology. On your website, out on the neocities.org, I found a lot of your world-building pieces. Were those sketches? Some people put that sort of thing into... I, we've had people go on and talk about here's here's my tools over there. I really liked that that somebody who was an enthusiast about your world could go and read out different things in different pieces because you talk about silver and the history and stuff that it's hard to cram all that into a book. So did those come before or after you first got out Shadow and Light? That was before. That was in many ways my attempt to structure the matrix of in which I was going to be writing and make sure that I had a check on myself to keep my world real, not just to me, but to my reader. There are more pieces than that. I just put some select ones up there that I thought were interesting. Quite a bit of the material I have saved, I, I consider probably pretty boring to an average. Oh, I don't you know. know. When I was reading the short story, The Fear and the Maiden Out, I heard Lorena McKinnett singing The Highwayman in my head the whole time. That was a beautiful, beautiful retelling. Yeah. I wanted to do something that honored that song because that song still touches me so deeply today. Dave, did you have a thought on The Highwaymen? No, I had a thought on The Silmarillion. 
<laughs> oh, that's ah. a point. Do you think he that sort of put together your Silmarillion bits then? I, I read the Silmarillion twice in college. Me too. Um, undergrad school. Um, and I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, but I'm the kind of person who loves rich detail. Mm-hmm. For me, it was a, a fascinating portal into J.R.R. Tolkien's mind and how he got to his world. Yeah. I think what I do, and and I hope this doesn't sound egotistical, is very much like the process he went through, where he delved, and he was a linguist, of course, so he came at it from the language point. But um, he built his world a brick at a time, and so did I, by yeah. adding things I favored and then finding ways to integrate them so that they made a sense as a whole. And because I am uh, kind of aware from my training as an ecologist, the things that better fit together solidly <laughs> or they, they uh, will unravel in entertaining and sometimes very, very unpleasant ways. Um, I, I went to the extra effort to make sure I had that background Bible assembled uh, before I ever actually wrote the first story down. Right. Well, I was going to ask about that, but you just answered the question. So you, you, you get it all down. If not, if not all word for word on paper, at least in your head before you, before you start writing the story. And and as somebody who appreciates the story but doesn't want to read the Silmarillion, you know, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I can't envision myself writing the equivalent of the Silmarillion. For one thing, too much of the stuff is, is frankly uninteresting except in context. So when I wrote the Fear and the Maiden story, the Highwayman was very much in my mind. I, I have it on a CD, and I play it now and then in my office. And lately, I've just been playing it by linking into a website, uh, a, a YouTube site. And that lovely story, it's very Victorian. It was written by Alfred Noyes back in the Victorian uh, time period in England. It's a retelling of an old story. Noyes would travel around England collecting stories in bars and in country taverns and published books of them. That's just one of many but he particularly liked that and put it to um, a, a, a publisher and it was published as a, a story in Britain. And hence it has much wider distribution than most of the rest of the stuff he collected. Uh, Lorena McKennett found it and revived it in essence. And her retelling is gorgeous. And I wanted to retell that story as it might've happened in my world, which is how you got the, the story you got. I also was struck by um, the the title of, and now I'm embarrassed because I just had a senior moment and I've forgotten the artist's name, but Death and the Maiden is a, a story from a Hispanic writer in South America who I, I can't tell you his name right now because it just fell out of my head. And that title had been haunting me. I've never read the actual story, but just that title had been haunting me at the time. And I said, I have to put these two things together. And the, the catalyst for that, ironically, was Glenn Cook, um, who has a fantasy detective series um, that starts with a book called Sweet Silver Blues. And his detective is a character in a city filled with mythological creatures of all sorts, you know, trolls, orcs, elves, everything. Mm-hmm. And he puts a different twist on Shadow all of that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. I will throw out that Death and a Maiden, because I we got a lot of this through the patents of medieval. We saw it through paintings. I think Baldur did it, Deutsche did it, Levy did it. Yep. Edvard Munch did one in 1894. Yep. So that, if that was who you're thinking of, Schubert yep. 
did one. So Death and a Maiden is is a recurring a recurring leitmotif, as it were. <laughs> yep. And I wanted to give some homage to that at the same time as I so, told a very personal story about my main character's experience, life experience, especially at a point when he's young. Um, he's only embarked on his career, as it were, for two years, um, is still mourning the loss of his wife and and has a hard time getting over that and is coping in many ways with being both appallingly powerful and appallingly vulnerable in his society. So had a lot of fun with that. If I may go in a slightly different direction, one of the things that I really liked about reading your books is the vividness that you describe what your characters see. I, I think this is a real strength of yours, and I'm wondering how much of that came from your ecology degree of looking around landscape. How do you describe what you're looking at? You have a very rich tapestry of words, and I like that in the word, from from the seascapes to the landscape of describing it. I really enjoy that about that. Thank you. I, I have kind of specialized in that. Um, I love vivid imagery. I love vivid descriptions. And I struggled early in my, my writing career to capture that. And I was blessed to have a very good writing group, which I'm still part of here in Denver, um, called the Northern Colorado Writers Workshop. It was founded by Ed Bryant, who's a horror writer and also a teacher at uh, one of the Denver universities. And he was a wonderful man. I knew him during the, the last three years, three to four years of his life uh, when he was still running the workshop. Um, excellent teacher in so many ways and especially he taught me to bring that particular strength to the fore he said this is something you're already really good at um use it as a major prop in what you do and he always encouraged me to avoid the white room syndrome that's where you open a, a story and you read through and at the end they might as well land in a room completely painted white because you still have no idea where they are or what's going on around them well, it just means if they were going to tell that story on a stage, it would be very easy to stage with fewer sets. But yours is trickier. Yours is very cinemagraphic. Yeah. I like sensuality, all, all the senses. Um, there's a slogan about that. Tell your characters about the warm, wet, stinky bricks. Warm, <laughs> wet, stinky bricks of the road, the, the, the place they're in, everything. Make people feel like they're there. Yeah, but what do they taste like? Well, well, that's when you get into horror. <laughs> and I was I was just musing as I was as I finished it and was looking through some of your other materials out there and thinking, you know, fantasy has this somewhat. Sean Russell was also, I think, really good at drawing images, but it is very common in horror writing. And some of your scenery goes, especially with the shadow, goes kind of in deep dark places and so that's where I think the all of the details of this is scary stuff is always better if you give somebody all of those visceral pieces, whereas the white room is not as horrifying. Yes, very true. Uh, that's one of the lessons of, of people who run haunted houses is you can do a lot with all of the senses. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I remember vividly uh, when Mark Matthew Simmons ran a haunted house in Denver, they had one room where you walked through and it just had black threads hanging from the ceiling, but you couldn't see them in the, the dim lighting in the room. Mm -hmm. And they would brush against your face as you walked through. And it creeped yeah. people out just enormously. Yep. I'm touching my face like it reflexively just hearing about that. Yeah. Genius and yeah. horrible all at the same time. Yeah. And all it was was pieces of black thread hung from the ceiling. 
So it, it taught me that very simple things can have powerful emotional responses. So what are the tools that you're using now? Do you use a notepad and then transcript it? Does it all go into your you know, trusty computer? What are your tools of the trade and how do you put it all together? I mostly write on my desktop computer, the same one I use in my working days. Um, but I also carry a stick around with the current version of the story on it. That's sort of the, uh, one of the backups for it. It's also all my stories are backed up on a Dropbox too. And I can take that stick to like Barnes and Noble in Boulder, which has a quite lovely little cafe, park myself at a table, plug it into my laptop and write for a couple, three hours. Um, I, I like doing that at times when I know that if I'm going to be at home, I'm going to be interrupted. And interruption is just the death for me of telling co co coherent stories. I, I really need blocks of time. I've met authors. Kevin Anderson is a prime example who can write successfully in 15 minute increments scattered throughout the day. I can't do that. I, I, I need an hour or better in a solid block to get things done. So I go hide somewhere with my computer, either in my office or at Barnes and Noble or some other location. And I just write solidly for a while. So here's a question about that process since you brought it up is part of that time, like getting, getting into it. So like maybe there's a ramp up of 10 or 15 minutes and then you're, and then you're writing. And if you get interrupted, you have to start over or, or is it just, is it a psychological thing where you know that you need, you have that hour or you need that hour and you can and write, but if you only have 15 minutes, you can't, you can't start up. It, it's both. I, I, I do reread the previous thing I've been, I've been writing each time I start anew. So if I ended a chapter and I'm about to start a, a new chapter with this writing session, I'll go back and reread part or all of that previous chapter. And that sets my mind in the framework of the storytelling. If I don't have that initial 10 minutes or so to reread what I'd previously done, I flounder and I, I don't find it a progress, a productive session. I was going to say, I find a similar thing. I have to stop to fall back in love again. You know, so it's I think it's romancing your brain with your own characters a little bit. That's a good term. Yes. Yes. Uh, it is in many ways romancing my brain, um, co coaxing my brain to pick up again where it was before. And once I've, I'm, I'm back in that groove, I can write for an hour, you know, just spew forth um, entire chapters sometimes. Nice. So NaNoWriMo has got nothing on you then. I, I wish NaNoWriMo was at some other time of the year. Fall is always a really busy season for me in my day job, and I struggle to get any time to write. The notion of trying to write an entire novel while I'm simultaneously trying to like you know, generate a quarter of my annual income or better, um, it just doesn't work. <laughs> Maybe if it had been spring rhymo, that would work. What month, what month would be good for you? What's, what's a good writing month for you? <laughs> oh, probably April. Generally in April, I don't have a lot I'm doing. So April Rymo sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. I wish they would run a, uh, an April Rymo. Then I might be able well, to, to do it. Run your own private April Rymo. <laughs> yeah, I try. But, you know, there's this thing called family. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, that's going to exist no matter what the month is, though. So, yeah. Ironically, one of my more productive times is uh, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights, I put my daughter to bed. And um, that's always a drawn out process. But some of those nights, sometimes she'll just cork right off to sleep. You know, I, I spend about 45 minutes to an hour getting her undressed and in her jammies and in her bed and get her milk running for the night. And 
make sure she's had her medications and all that sort of thing. And she wants some music playing. She wants me to give her some of her little books to, to have by her. Sometimes she reads and get all that set up. And sometimes I can just go sit at the dining table, sit there waiting for her to yell, hey, daddy, I need to have my diaper changed. Um, but she'll fall asleep. And when she does, it's like, ooh, hot damn, I can work. <laughs> and on some of those nights, I've turned out three chapters. Um, it's usually more like one, but um, it, it's it's just nice. Other nights, of course, she's fussy and five hours will go by and I'm still waiting on her hand and foot before she falls asleep. And I don't get anything productive done that night at all. So right. it's a crapshoot. Right. So you don't know from one night to the next whether it's going to be a, a productive night or a fussy night. Yeah. And I just I can't commit to a schedule. I can't tell an editor I will have this book done for you in three months because um, I don't know if I will. So do you do you use a separate editor or do you use a, your work group and then you edit yourself? How do you handle that? As I sub, as I finish my stuff and having the writing group gives me pressure to keep going so that I'll have something to submit each month, I'll send a few chapters at a time to my group. Uh, my current book, which will be the sixth book in this set, jumps five years ahead of the ending of the fifth book. So I let my character do a little more growing up. And I have submitted the first four chapters, got wonderful feedback on Saturday from them from our monthly meeting, and already written an additional 5,000 words. So that book is already up now to 10,000 words um, as a result of that uh, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday session with my writing group. It's amazing how productive one can become when the, the opportunity and the, the, uh, the energy meet. Yeah. Ooh. Now, I don't remember you being an artist. Did you do your own covers or who's doing those magnificent, beautiful covers? Oh, her name is Claire PC. She's a Brit. She lives in somewhere in London. Um, she's middle-aged with her husband and she's been an artist, commercial artist for many years. She has over 400 pieces sold to the gaming industry in the United States and Germany. So if you are a tabletop or especially a uh, role-playing gamer, you've probably seen her work in dozens of different publications. Um, she branched out into book covers only the year before I did my first. So she had only three or four under her belt at that point. But Ken Burnside, who had bought many works from her and who is a game producer here in the U.S. and who I know through a mutual friend, um, recommended to her to me first off. He said, if you're doing fantasy covers, you need Claire. So I emailed Claire and we exchanged stuff back and forth. She got really excited by the world and the characters. And she proceeded to show me after I contracted with her for some book covers, um, how she built them. All of her artwork is done inside the computer. Nothing actually exists until she prints it out or until she shows it to somebody on a screen. And she, um, she bought a, a model scan, a body scan of a model, uh, of a guy, um, for $25. She, she told me, <laughs> she said, he comes wearing a Speedo. If you want him wearing less than that, it costs a lot more than $25. And I said, no, that's fine. <laughs> I'm not writing that kind of book. I don't need that kind of book cover. Um, but that's where the, the book cover originated from. Um, that initial book with both Karen and Carol, those are the same model. All the changes between them, making Karen thinner and, and more overtly muscular and making Carol beefier and a little taller, were done inside her computer. She changed her skin tones, everything. I'm still flabbergasted by this art. I mean, I'm aware that it's it's established technology, eight or nine years old. Lots of other people do it. But it still blows me away every time I see the transformation from that initial body scan 
to the completed book cover. Yeah. Wow. I, I love what's being done. So the books are Shadow and Light, Shadow Rising, Shadow Devoted, Shadow Grounded, Shadow Exalted. What are you working on right now? The next one right now has the working title of Raid, simply because a a raid during a war is the primary action that occurs during it. I will come up with a better title later on, but I often just stick a, a one-word title on my manuscripts as I'm going until I figure out what the story is about later. Um, when I wrote the initial book, I wrote right on past the ending, Shadow and Light. I kept writing and writing, and I got about eight chapters into Shadow Rising before it dawned on me that I was telling a different story. Yeah. And I stopped and went back and said, no, here's where it needs to be cut. So I chopped it and I took those eight chapters and they became uh, the, the front of the, the second book. Lois McMaster Bujold did much the same when she wrote Shards of Honor. Mm -hmm. and she wrote right on past the end of the book. <laughs> and her editor said, no, that's the ending over there. So years later, she took the leftover and she produced the novel Barriar, which picks up the characters the next day and continues. Well, I did her one better. I picked up 15 minutes later. <laughs> and continue excellent what what advice would you give to somebody else who's like maybe they've got stories maybe they've been running D, D groups they've they've been storytelling somewhere how do they start novel writing what's your advice sit down and just do it you have a template in the form of dozens of hundreds and hundreds of novels that shows you how novels work the chapter system the point of view system um how to write um, if you have any kind of basic writing experience, those should be covered for you. And if you don't, go take an ordinary, go audit an ordinary college writing course at your local community college and learn what those building blocks are. Once you've got them, and they're simple building blocks, um, practice. Practice makes all the difference. Write, write, write. Um, it, it's, it's said that you need to spend 10,000 hours at doing anything to become really good at it. Definitely applies to writing. I am way past my 10,000 hours at this point. I'm probably past, I'm probably closing in on 100,000, I suppose. I don't know. Probably why you're, we like your book so much. I, I hope that all my practice shows in the sense that I've learned how to tell a seamless story that flows right along. Well, you've said that your um, initial novel you go back to and you uh, see, or you, you look at it just to see your, that you've improved so much since then. Do you... Do you do the same with the rest of your books? Do you see a constant improvement over time? I mean, it's probably much more gradual at this point. There's an asymptotic learning curve, I'm sure. But The asymptotic learning curve is definitely true. The, the first years are very steep, but that doesn't mean one doesn't keep improving. You're right, it's at a slower pace. Um, one of the comments one of my fellow writers made when reviewing the current work was, your stuff just moves so smoothly. And that I've got enough practice at scene changes and at unfolding a scene um, that I can make it look seamless. And it's only because of doing it a lot. Um, and that, that mirror image that your fellow writers can hold up to you. And I think there's no substitute for having a writing group of other writers who are like you, um, learning themselves constantly. We're constantly learning to mirror back at you. Yeah. Jazz has his own point of view and is wrong, but I, I'm with you. And it's, it's even useful if you're in a group oh. where you don't all agree. Because I remember the first time I tried somebody else looking at it, they liked Philip Marlowe in short sentences, and I liked Jane Austen in compound sentences. And, well, we had different views of sentence structure, but it's good to get that feedback 
because it makes you think. Even if you don't change a lot, it makes you consider from another point of view of a different reader looking at your material. I think the single most valuable thing about a writer's group actually doesn't have anything to do with my work. There are three things Ed Bryant told us that we're supposed to experience in a writer's group. One is the the experience of being critiqued by other people. Um, second is the experience of learning how to critique other people's work. And third is the, and he said this is in many ways the most important, the experience of hearing somebody else's work critiqued by other people. Those three points of view create a three-dimensional matrix, if you will, of, of reality around whatever that work is that's being critiqued. And it, it makes a wonderful sensation because it teaches us some, some humility. There's always someone in the group who'll notice things that you didn't even notice that went right over your head. Um, it'll also teach you the variety of ways in which the same words can be perceived. Sometimes Some of the members of my group have reacted to my story in ways that just boggled me when they interpreted something I wrote in a certain way that was nothing like what I meant. And then came back with a comment that just floored me. And I realized that I was ambiguous enough that it was a perfectly reasonable mistaken assumption for them to have made. And I had to find a way to write more concisely so that that error didn't propagate across the story and lead people to be frustrated, and confused. One of the, the, the humbling experiences of writer is getting a review on Amazon and having somebody tear into your story, Amazon or Goodreads or anywhere else for things that you didn't even perceive as being problems, but to them loomed very large and, their view of, of, of your world and and think, well, you can push it off by saying you can't please all the people all the time, but that's not actually the issue here. The issue is, was I concise and clear enough that people who read my book knew what I was saying? And that's the thing we constantly struggle to improve. Well, on the one hand, I want to remind everybody to go out and put critiques on Amazon. Any star ratings from one to five still help the author. So Yes, yes. Even if you want to rip my book a new one, do it. The last thing you read, I want everybody who listens to this to, if you bought it on Amazon, go out to Amazon and critique it. I don't care how many stars, be honest, say what you liked, say what you don't like, or even liked it, hated it, whatever, because that's how authors get people to read their works and can keep writing and get better. So yeah. even one sentence is good. It's true. Well, we will put links to the fascinating things we discussed during this episode on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me, Jeannie. Thank you too, Dave. It's good yeah. to hear your voices again after all these years. Yeah, you too. It is, and I'm so delighted of where you've gone, and I get to pimp you out to everyone to say, hey, come read the <laughs> cool books my friend wrote. Well, when I get the sixth book done, I'll show it to you before other people get to see it. How about that? That sounds fantastic. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a love of labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web magic is cast by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music is performed by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Stream, Arm Street, and wherever you go to sit your butt down and write your book. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>